0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 51 of Inside COVID-19. some big names in this episode, we'll have an update on South Africa's war against the coronavirus from the country's designated expert, Dr. Salim Abdul Karim. We get to hear about insurers that are refusing to settle billions in business interruption claims from South African companies. There's a look back at the Middle Ages and its Black Death and the Spanish flu to try and understand what our economy will look like after the pandemic and we go inside the Oval Office with the exclusive interview that our partners at the Wall Street Journal held with U.S. President Donald Trump talking, of course, about the pandemic. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's total confirmed coronavirus patients went beyond 100,000 on Monday with the third successive day of more than 4,000 new cases. Just over half the total, though, or 53,000, have been classified as recovered. There were a further 61 deaths on Monday that takes this total to 1,991. Globally, with about 5.5 million having recovered from the virus, there are now 3.8 million active cases, of which 58,000 are classified as serious or crucial. New cases however have been growing at around 150,000 a day with a second wave clearly evident in the United States which recorded more than 30,000 fresh infections on Monday surpassing recently the Brazil at 24,000 with India next highest at 13,500. South Africa is 8th on this unenviable list behind those 3, Russia, Mexico, Chile and Pakistan. Although far behind Mexico's world leading 1,044 deaths on Monday, South Africa's edging up the daily mortality list and now occupies 13th spot in the world. A battle is brewing between South African businesses and their insurance companies over claims relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. This conflict has arisen out of business interruption insurance, particularly those which included cover for infectious diseases. Insurance companies have been rejecting the claims outright or making the process impossible. One of the most affected areas is tourism and hospitality, which has been paralysed by the COVID-19 enforced shutdown. Later in this episode, we'll hear from an agency which is representing 450 tourism companies in their fight against the insurers. The South African public and individual companies have donated 1.4 million pieces of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers through the Business for South Africa PPE portal, the organization disclosed today. This included 945,000 pairs of examination gloves, 233,000 surgical masks, 130,000 N95 respirators, 135,000 face shields, and 9,100 leases. Of sanitizer. South Africa's official unemployment rate rose to 30.1% in the three months to end March, a reduction of 91,000 in the workforce, but with almost a million people joining the pool of potentially economically active people every year, the net number of unemployed rose by what Stanlib economist Kevin Lings describes as, quote, a very concerning 869,000. The total is now just over 7 million people. Lings says that when you add those who are so discouraged that they no longer look for work, the expanded unemployment rate increases to 39.7%. The jobless problem is most acute amongst the youth, with the unemployment for those under the age of 25 at 59%, but some 70% when you include the discouraged. Ling says the continued deterioration of the labour market reflects a lack of fixed investment spending and record low business confidence. The latest data was measured prior to the impact of COVID-19, suggesting significant further deterioration occurred in the second quarter of this year. Inside COVID-19, from BizNews. Let's start off this episode with some refreshingly honest insights from inside South Africa's coronavirus war room. Our business colleague, Chris Bateman, spoke to Professor Salim Abdul Karim, chairman of the country's Ministerial Advisory Committee for COVID-19.
1: What we know about this virus is really just scratching the surface. There is a large amount of information we just don't have. And so we are often in a situation of imperfect knowledge and evidence. And we're having to make, you know, recommendations with imperfect or inadequate information because it's more important to act. It's like, you know, medical care. The patient who dies because you didn't act, you know, it's really not good medicine. You should act. Even if you make the wrong diagnosis, act. And if it's not the right diagnosis, you'll figure it out and you'll change course to the extent that that's possible.
2: Can I just interrupt you to take you back to the original sort of postulation that I made? And that is that yeah. we, we have more data available. We initially yeah. we relied on projections and actuaries and all the rest, but now we're getting a clearer picture globally and locally. Um, last night I was on listening to a webinar unpacking the central Augustine's tragedy and some of your own colleagues who probed that, and we really are getting an idea of what things are looking like. But globally, there's a lot more data available, and the claim is that the government is not responding agilely and quickly enough to uh, or to course correct.
1: That's a different uh, question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not a mathematical modeler, so I don't, you know, depend on mathematical modeling. I simply look at the data as they are. I get my impressions based on that. I can tell where things are based on my understanding of the current epidemic trajectory. So when, you know, people say you use this model or that model, to me, That's something that, you know, it just is an ancillary. And there are many mathematical models out there and they give you all the different estimates. It's not something that I have spent my time trying to understand or figure out which is correct and which is not. If we have a reasonable understanding of what the current state of the epidemic is and what some of the likely scenarios are in the next few weeks, we can make appropriate decisions the challenge comes about that when you make a recommendation as we do in the ministerial advisory committee there is very substantial work that needs to be done to convert a recommendation into action on the ground let me give you an example so one of the early things that the ministerial advisory committee advised on was we recommended that we should initiate a community health care worker program that goes house to house and looks for cases because we were seeing too few cases and we wanted to get ahead of the epidemic. We wanted to find the cases before they came to hospital. And so we did that. Well, to implement that is a huge amount of work massive planning resources, you have to spend time getting community buy-in and so on. So now we make a recommendation that given the shortage of tests, that we should change that program so that it doesn't involve testing. That when a patient is, when a person in the community is found to have symptoms, is to initiate quarantine without a test. Now to actually implement that means going back to all those stakeholders and getting new buy-in for what you're proposing to do. That is not something that you can say, yes, you know, we're going to do that and it's going to happen tomorrow. That's a process and it takes time. Now for those of us in academia, We are always expecting things to get done quickly. But in government, those things are not easy to do because those are massive programs that are in place. People have to be hired or people have to be brought on board, equipment and all that stuff. So now when you undo that or when you change that or you want to change direction, it takes time.
2: Let's just stop and look at that. We're talking about tens of thousands of community healthcare workers going out into communities. One of the recommendations which you've alluded to is actually, instead of testing, now they're going to hand out masks, they're going to educate, they're going to talk about social distancing, they're going to give them hands-on advice. Is that so complicated?
1: Well, it's complicated if you're going into a community and you raise the expectations to do X, and then you go into the community and you do Y. You end up with a situation where... You lose your credibility and nobody will take you seriously. We are deeply embedded with ensuring that we take communities along with us. So you and I can say, yeah, but you can do that in a day. (laughs) That's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's look at what we did. When we made the decision as a country, when the president decided that we were institute a state of disaster and institute a lockdown basically we were acknowledging that we cannot follow our traditional public health paradigm our traditional public health paradigm is we collect the evidence we understand how the disease spreads we develop a intervention program we pilot it we adjust it we then take it to our early adopters we go to our consultation processes And then eventually it gets diffused into the general population. That takes a year, two years. We didn't have time. So we couldn't follow the usual paradigm. So instead, we try to protect people with government action. We said to people, stay at home. And we said that you should stay at home because this can be a deadly disease. We explained how it affects people. Now we have the opposite situation. Now we're telling people, Actually, we'd like you to go to school. We'd like you to go to work. We'd like you to go back to restaurants at a time when the cases are actually going up. And we're saying to you that now you don't need government action to protect yourself. You need to protect yourself. You need to ensure you social distance. You need to use a mask. You need to wash your hands. It's all in your control. So initially, we took that control away—not took it away, but we instituted as a government a set of requirements. And now we're trying to undo that, and we're saying you regulate it, you regulate it, and we're not. This is not about enforcement. This is about what you want to do. Because if you do it, you protect yourself your family, your community. If you don't do it, you put all of us at risk.
2: What's your sense of how it's working? I mean, it's early days, what three, four weeks?
1: I have seen both sides of the coin. When I walk around my neighborhood in the morning, in my walks, I'm actually struck. If I see one person who is walking around without a mask, it's a lot, and I see a few people putting the mask below their noses, and I can live with that. But I have been quite impressed with that. When I go shopping, I mean, the protocols that are followed at my local Woolworths is really good. I mean, all the social distancing when we wait outside, they hand sanitize us when we go in. I mean, it's pretty good. I look at all of that. We could never have got that in place in March. We can do it now because people understand they've had time to think about it. They've had time to Get the sanitizers and get the people to come and put all these procedures in place. We've been successful at that level. But then I go to other areas. And I'm shocked. No social distancing, many people not wearing masks. So I think because we are not a regimented society, we're a society that takes pride in our ability to make our own decisions. We let people make their own decisions, and people will make decisions that are not in the public's overall interest and their own interests And we have to just accept that. That's just part of it. I think the extent to which we lose that battle, is going to define how severe the epidemic is going to be. But I have to tell you that I see a silver lining. And that silver lining is something I learned in HIV and we saw in COVID in New York. That as the epidemic grows and as people know someone who's had this disease, who's died from this disease, people change their behavior. It becomes personal. It's not something I'm just told about. It becomes personal. I saw that in HIV. People didn't want to change their behavior. But once it became widespread, they knew people in their families, in their in their neighborhood, people, public faces of this disease, people changed their behavior.
2: There's an irony in that, isn't there? Because you wish that people would change their behavior earlier before it gets in their faces. How <laughs> does one address that irony? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. uh, in Durban, they tell me,
1: why are, we, why are we staying at home with this virus? And I have to tell them, actually, you know, that's a paradox, that the reason the virus hasn't spread and in KwaZulu-Natal is because you stayed at home.
2: The testing. There have been calls from a lot of your very well-respected colleagues, a previous chairman of the HIV Clinician Society, Francois Fenter, and others, that... Let's narrow down, and I think you alluded to it it happening, just the the slowness of it. Let's narrow down the testing and our resources to the hospitals, the healthcare workers, the vulnerable populations, the immune compromised, the elderly. Let's concentrate and minimize our resources or at least use them more effectively because we can turn around the results, the test results from, I don't know what the lag time is now. The last I heard was seven days. Now, that's a very long time for somebody who's unknowingly infected to spread the virus. So where are we on that continuum?
1: Yeah, I have to say it has been disappointing that it has taken the laboratory services so long to prioritize. And that has been an issue because we know in a clinical setting we need results quickly. And the problem comes about from the challenge that we do not have enough tests. And so when we discussed it at the Ministerial Advisory Committee, we said we need to do three things. The first is we need to decrease demand. The second is we need to increase the number of tests we have available. And the third is we need to use our tests more efficiently. So each of those three things, we provided some advice. On how to do that. Now, getting more tests, that turns out not to be an easy thing to do. But I'm very pleased to hear the President announced it in his State of Nations and his address this week that, you know, we will now be accessing kits through the African-level platform, so where 15 million kits are now being secured on a monthly basis. So that will address the issue of increasing supply to some extent. The issue of decreasing demand, that is a quite a complicated thing to do. There are some things you can do reasonably quickly, and that would be, for example, prioritizing hospital patients. Every time swap comes from a hospital patient or a healthcare worker, you can just prioritize that.
2: What's the optimal yeah.
1: time for a pcr test you would expect 48 hours and, up and, to and 72 in
2: some instances what's the reality now
1: so now we are probably close to that I think the backlogs are pretty much done in most places, but we'll hear. I, I, so I'm not best placed to tell you this mm-hmm. because that's the lab services that can right. tell you this. But from what I've been told that the backlogs are mostly being addressed. So there's no backlog now in Western Cape and the other backlogs are significantly lower, including Kozuna Hotel. But that's not for me what is the underlying issue. The underlying issue is that we expected quicker action. And it turned out... That those of whom, like the lab services, that our expectation of quicker action doesn't doesn't translate in their their work procedures into something that can be done so quickly.
2: Okay, I think you've pretty much answered that. I know you pushed for time. Would you wrap up with what your top advice would be to our listeners as we navigate our way through this globally unprecedented channel with all its unexpected twists and turns? What have been some of the most impressive upsides for you of this coronavirus?
1: I mean, for me, we've reached a stage now where we have to convert the anxiety that many people had about this virus and about contracting it to a one where we focus on self-efficacy, where we provide people with the information and the knowledge about how to protect themselves and uh, assist them in implementing those. And I think if we can do that, I think we will not see the kinds of epidemics we have been most concerned about.
2: Perhaps if you were to prioritize one take-home message, what would that be?
1: Your risk of the coronavirus and your family's risk and your community's risk is all in your hands.
0: Inside COVID nineteen, Trump's news. There's a battle royal that is brewing in the insurance industry all about claims for business interruption insurance. Ryan Woolley is the chief executive of Insurance Claims Africa. Ryan, I've heard from a lot of people in the industry that this is really knuckle-dusting stuff, that you've got companies who have taken out insurance against business interruption, including in their policies is that they would be paid out if... If there was an infectious disease or a pandemic like we're going through now, but the insurance companies are not prepared to actually settle. How accurate is that? It sounds a little bit far-fetched.
3: Well, I think it's completely accurate. We represent over four to five hundred claimants, and they've all had their policies with these various insurers for many years, and these insurers designed bespoke products for them, business interruption. That would cover them for if there was a notifiable infectious or contagious disease, which COVID is, and if it affected their business and they then could not trade, well, then the insurers are supposed to stand good and pay their claims. And essentially, these insurers are now reneging on those contracts, saying, Yes, although we gave you this petite wording and this special cover, well, we didn't intend to insure pandemics, and it's not. The COVID-19 outbreak that's causing your loss, it's actually the government's restrictions and their interventions that are and the lockdown measures that are causing your loss.
0: Are they at least offering to repay the
3: premiums? Not at all. You know, they're just saying, unfortunately, the policy wasn't designed to cover that. And they're putting words into the intention and the meaning. But when you read the plain words on the contract, it's undeniable what these policies were there to cover. It just doesn't make sense to us. If you're ensuring a notifiable or contagious infectious disease, you're contemplating the fact that the government is going to intervene, that there are gonna be quarantine measures. You know, these policies have got a radius limit to them that says if there's an infectious contagious disease within 50 kilometers and it affects your business, well, we will pay you. They've got smart lawyers on their side that are trying to get them out of their liability Essentially, they just didn't do the math on what this would cost them. Do
0: you think it's existential for the insurance companies that they're taking such a rather strange approach?
3: Absolutely. Like I said, I don't think they did the math. I don't think that they realized that they were this exposed. In our hospitality and tourism clients, the numbers aren't as significant as we thought. But you know, there are certain insurers that are exposed to corporate and commercial claims in this arena. And I don't think that they can afford these things, which is why we've gone and we've offered them a compromise. We've gone to the insurers and we've said to them, listen, we understand the position that you're in. Our clients understand the position that you're in. We're not looking to devastate any company, but likewise, don't devastate our poor insurers. Tourism is the lifeblood of one of the lifebloods of the economy. And to rob three, four billion out of that industry is just unthinkable. It's unconscionable.
0: Is that what the numbers are?
3: That's more or less in terms of what we are estimating for the hospitality and tourism sector for the claimants that we have on hand.
0: So let's understand this, right? You run a restaurant. You are worried that there might, at some point in time, be an Ebola or, heaven help us, COVID-19. Uh, you take out insurance to make sure that if it happens, at least you don't go bankrupt. So you pay those premiums. But once COVID-19 appears on the scene, your insurance company says, sorry, we're not prepared to settle. Is that the reality?
3: You've put it very clearly. That's exactly what they're saying. You know, this sort of cover was, when I say design boutique, specific for hospitality and tourism, they took their vanilla wording and they said, you know what, we're going to give you guys wider cover for exactly these things, like Ebola. And COVID-19 is no different. It's also a notifiable disease. They say that they don't want to ensure pandemics. These guys have got these guys measure risk. They've got some of the best research facilities in the world, especially the reinsurers. And when you look at that, you say, well, SARS, MERS, Ebola, all been around since 2003, avian flu. The chances of an epidemic or pandemic were there. They didn't exclude it in their wordings. They wrote the cover, and they gave it away without doing any decent underwriting. You know, this cover also has got stuff for shark attack. And one of the classic examples we've got is the restaurant in Benoni has got cover for shark attacks. They just didn't apply their, any underwriting critique to this cover.
0: Did these insurers not reinsure? Is this where the problem lies, that they are themselves now exposed to this potential huge liability?
3: Well, we don't know what their reinsurance arrangements are, but we've obviously heard from the market talk that, yes, their reinsurers are taking a hard line and their reinsurers won't consider a compromise, which is why the insurers are being forced into the courts. These reinsurers are European and UK-based, and this is a global decision that they're making. Well, you know, it should be up to our local South African companies to take them to task and to push back with it. We don't believe that the wordings that are there that our insurers wrote should be honoured. The fact that the reinsurer doesn't want to pay, we think that on the deals that we've provided to the insurers, that they can afford these claims. So we've given them terms. We've offered them to pay lump sums up front of 50 to 60 percent of the value of a discounted claim settlement, and then pay it off over six months to 24 months, period of their choosing. It just gives our insurers the ability to survive. I can't think that the insurers on the policies that they've written think that there's no risk attached to this and they are seriously rolling the dice when they're going to court. I'd hate to think what their shareholders think and whether the boards of these companies actually know what their ex are doing.
0: What companies are exposed?
3: What so all, the, all, the, all the major insurers are involved. It's Hollard, Bright, Santum, Guard Risk, which is essentially Momentum. Then you've got Thatch Risk Acceptances and Factory and Industrial.
0: Suntum, Mutual and Federal, are they in there as well?
3: And Mutual and Federal as well, that's correct, yes, Suntum definitely.
0: Is it a knock-on effect then that somebody perhaps in Europe sees this as an existential risk as a reinsurer and then says, well, we can't go to the wall, the only way we're not going to go to the wall is by denying claims and then it cascades down to the South African companies as well?
3: Could very well be the case, but that should be a fight between the insurer and the reinsurer, not between the policyholder and the insurer. They're leaving their policyholders out to dry. The reinsurers themselves, there are actions in the UK with the FCA, which I think will definitely play out and have an impact on what happens here in South Africa and how the reinsurers will conduct themselves. The FSCA in South Africa has been very proactive. We've been pleased with their approach and the way that they've gone about it. They've engaged with the insurers and reinsurers, and they issued a directive on Friday last week, which said that a large portion of these claims are payable. And, you know, we now want to see the insurers starting to honor that directive.
0: Have they yet? Have they given you any indication that they will?
3: No, they haven't. In fact, I think sometimes sent a release out today saying that uh, no, only in these specific circumstances will they pay, and also... That they don't believe that they cover the lockdown period or pandemics, which, again, you know, we just feel is just ridiculous.
0: Well, it certainly means you can tear up their marketing claims. We don't we don't hassle. We pay, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens next? Do you go to court?
3: I think it's inevitable. I think that whichever way the guys from the FSCA went and in their directive that they issued, the reality is that there's an appeal process. So the insurers can go straight into court on that. I think that we definitely will be bringing urgent applications for declarators. Uh, Santam have been very good. They've said that they won't oppose any fast tracking of any legal process, but they do want certainty in the courts. So I think the earliest date at the moment that we've got with Suntum, not our action, but one that we could intervene is the 1st of September. Alternatively, we're going to try and see if we can bring an urgent application sooner.
0: But I guess the problem is many of the businesses might not be able to hang on that long.
3: You know, there's a war of attrition that an insurer can play. And the war of attrition is essentially the prescription periods that run. So once they've rejected, well, firstly, you have to submit your claim within 30 days of your interruption period. And if you've only got three months cover, that means that you have to have submitted it by the end of April. So if you look at that, if you miss that, you no longer have a claim. If they've rejected your claim, you have to respond in 90 days. If you don't do that, you lose your claim. You then have to issue summons within 12 months. On average, the policies can be different, but within 12 months of that rejection date. Again, if you can't afford that or if you miss that, your claim dies. You then look at if your business doesn't survive, which we've had several of our clients come forward to us and say, look, they just can't afford this. Unfortunately, they're going to be wound up and their business is done. And with that, it means that the claim dies with it. So there's a war of attrition that is in play. We are going to be approaching the FSEA for a moratorium on, moratorium on all prescription, just so that the fight is fair and that the playing field is, le- is leveled.
0: Is there anything in history that we can draw on? I, I recall Lloyds of London getting into big trouble by not being in a position to honour claims some years ago, and they had to restructure. Is there, is there anything that comes to mind that is similar to this?
3: Well, I don't think that there's been anything similar to this since then, but there have been insurance companies in South Africa that haven't been able to pay all their claims and have gone into liquidation, and yes, you get cents on the rand. They should have the high liquidity and solvency ratios that they have to adhere to in order to pay their claims. So the regulator and the prudential authority is quite heavily involved in that. I know that there have been a few left field uh, ideas that have been thrown around. I think that one even said that for the insurers to pay these claims and allow the the companies and the country to survive in this hospitality and tourism sector, it would mean that the insurers might have to drop their solvency ratios and liquidity ratios. And the government could actually step in with an equity share, 30%, 20%, whatever it might be, in order to stabilise them during a period of two to three years until they claw back out of this. Because the reality is that the insurers have the mechanism to claw back in premiums. So we think that they should be looking at a fair compromise. Even the FSEA would promote that, and, and, as opposed to finding a court battle that goes on for two to three years just ties up the courts and devastates the economy and essentially it will only be the lawyers that win at the end of the day. And the insurers, whether they win or lose, that fight will still be losers because one, they've devastated a sector of the economy or two, they've had to pay these claims at full value.
0: Inside nineteen the French author and philosopher Victor Hugo told us there is nothing new under the sun, and that seems to be the case even when it comes to pandemics. So is there anything we can learn from history about the way the world will adjust after COVID-19? In this superb discussion from the Odd Lots podcast produced by our partners at Bloomberg, hosts Tracy Alloway and Joe Weisenthal speak to Jamie Catherwood, who's an expert In finance history, Catherine draws on the Black Death and the Spanish flu pandemics to suggest what might lie ahead for economies.
4: I do want to go slightly further back and talk about um, the Middle Ages, the Black Death, aka the Great Plague. A lot of people have been looking at that one and talking about the labor market, what might happen to wages and inflation, and I've seen different theories on this, so. One explanation says that after the Great Death, so many people died, that there was a shortage of labor and wages eventually went up. But I've heard other people say that one of the reasons wages went up is basically a bunch of the peasants revolted and sort of violently forced uh, better earnings for themselves. What have you learned so far, Jamie? Like, what do your readings tell you on that topic?
5: So if you survived, then. In terms of the Black Death, everything came up peasants like it was a great time to be a peasant after the Black Death, because <laughs> like you mentioned, as you mentioned, um, there there is a lot of disagreement. But from what I've read, there seems to be a agreement that there was a rise in wages after the Black Death, because, as you mentioned, so many people died. And to put some numbers around it, the estimates are between 17 and 28 million Europeans because so many people had died. What happened was that suddenly all these lords um, who had previously seen over these manor systems where the peasants were working the land and the lord would collect rent dues from the peasants. They suddenly faced this problem where they had all this land, but suddenly now there weren't as many um, peasants to work until the land. So the peasants were able to demand higher wages. And also, they had the ability to kind of shop around their services to other lords, which previously wouldn't have been the case. But because every lord was so desperate to hire people to work their land, that if the lord a peasant was currently working for, didn't offer them better working conditions, living conditions, and wages, then they could just go to another lord who would be willing to offer them those um, conditions. But overall, the estimates are that wages... Rose between 20 and 40% from the 1340s to the 1360s. So again, pretty pronounced. But one thing that was a counter to this rise in nominal wages was there was a pretty substantial rise in inflation because the gold and silver supply remained constant, but the amount of people is decimated. So there was just a higher ratio um, of gold and silver per capita. So much of those kind of nominal weekly wage gains were offset by this inflation but there was obviously a lot of there were a lot of upset lords because they didn't want to deal with these peasants who were suddenly cocky and knew that they had kind of had leverage in this situation and there were all of these lords who were complaining about peasants who would barely do any work like they would make a huge fuss about being asked to do anything and if they did do jobs that they were doing haphazardly because they just knew that the Lord wouldn't be able to find a replacement for them. So the Lords tried to uh, lobby the UK authorities to do something about this problem. And what ended up happening was um, the government put out two statutes. Both were aimed at curtailing wages and they both stipulated that wages for peasants had to be set at pre-plague levels. So there's no interest rate policy or anything, but there is definitely statutes put in place to try and prevent the wage growth from spiraling out of control. What type of things would you look forward from history or what kind of questions do you still have as a student of history in terms of how uh, how the post coronavirus uh, period will transpire? I think that, like many of us, I am looking to see whether this kind of recent uptick in cases in some of the states that reopened is going to be something more lasting or whether it's a brief uptick because there are a lot of papers and examples from the Spanish flu that are very reminiscent of today where there was business owners protesting about not being able to operate their businesses and open up their shops. But also it'll be interesting to see what I think is in the next maybe crisis or crash, what people's expectations are. In terms of monetary policy and fiscal stimulus, based on what's happened this time around, because I think it's one of those things where now that the door has been opened, what seems radical this time might become the expectation the next time around. You know, everyone has seen these charts and stories of remember the the second wave of the Spanish flu was worse than the first, but was there anybody in 1918 saying, oh, remember? You know, what happened the second wave of X or is the awareness of the concept of, sec- of a second wave something that makes this uh, unique and thus maybe a reason to think that history won't play out? Because when you th- when you can observe something and when you can describe something, you usually don't really get the same as last time. I think although it, might, it might not have been like the second wave, the exact phrasing. There were definitely people who were advocating for continued kind of lockdown and quarantine in 1918, because they were aware that people continuing to go out and assemble in crowds would only cause the flu to linger around longer. But what is interesting and related to your point is that one reason to be more optimistic for today is the media was not going to report on bad news like this, like Spanish flu. I mean, World War One's going on. But back to your point is the fact that today, It's the opposite where literally all we read about is coronavirus, right? And so everyone is going to be more cognizant of the risks involved and how and where we can do things to prevent the continued uh, spread of the virus. So that is definitely one major reason to be optimistic is there's much uh, broader knowledge of how to stop the spread.
0: And we close off with that promised exclusive interview on the pandemic which our partners at The Wall Street Journal had with US President Donald Trump. Host of The Journal podcast, Ryan Knutsen, spoke to The Wall Street Journal's Michael Bender about his visit to the Oval Office. It's fascinating and scary in equal measures.
6: Before President Trump's rally in Tulsa this weekend, our colleague Michael Bender took a trip to the White House.
7: I haven't been to the White House all that often in the last few months because of coronavirus. It was a little jarring to go into the White House right now. I had to have my temperature checked outside. They asked me a, a series of questions about how I was feeling. Once inside, I took a coronavirus test and waited about a half an hour for the results before I could see the president. And then I was walked through the West Wing, to the Oval Office, I sat down in a chair right on the other side of the Resolute desk. Any seats? And, and you he, know, just
8: anything on
7: the Set side. my recorder on the corner of his desk and waited for about 20 minutes before the president even came in. How are you I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm oh, good, I'm
8: good. Yeah? I think we're doing good. I just got some good phone numbers, did
7: you? The president immediately told me how well he was doing in the polls, which conflicts with all of the public polling we're seeing which shows him trailing nationally and in some pretty key battleground states. He talked kind of broadly about those polls, so we didn't spend too much time on it.
6: And when you guys started talking about the pandemic, what was the tone he struck?
7: I mean, when it comes to the coronavirus, the president wants to move forward. He's basically putting the pandemic in the rearview mirror here.
8: And um, I think that, uh, you know, the numbers are very small. They said there's a spike. The spike is... I wish Mike were here because he was showing me the numbers before. It's like very few people. And I think they're in great shape. And I would even say the spike has already ended.
7: But Um, there's no tangible evidence that he's correct. And, in fact, most public health experts are warning Americans that we still need to be very careful when it comes to this virus.
6: And meanwhile, coronavirus cases in the U.S. are starting to tick up again.
7: Yeah, that's right. We're seeing... Numbers increase across the country, throughout the Southwest, and not to be too crass about this, but in politically important states here, in battlegrounds where Trump and Biden are going to be head to head in Arizona, in Florida, in Wisconsin.
6: So what did the president say about that?
7: When it comes to an increase, I asked him if there was a second spike in New York or in Michigan, where they've had a lot of cases, would he push to test everyone in new york everyone in michigan to find and isolate those cases and his answer to me was absolutely not
8: you know i would i personally think testing is overrated even though i created the greatest testing machine in history i've created the greatest testing machine in history i think testing is overrated why is that because i think you'll have it and you'll test i'm not saying testing is bad and certainly you test people and you want to see whether or not they have it But um, the testing can lead to a lot of mistakes also. Look, if we didn't test all the cases that we're reporting, you wouldn't know about any of those cases. In many ways, it makes us look bad. The fact that we're so good at something makes us look bad.
7: He is concerned about the... Number of cases in the U.S. that he sees this as a reflection on him and he sees this as a reflection on the country that the U.S. has the most cases. And in his mind, that is that's a data point to use to attack him.
6: It's not just the number of cases that's become political, even wearing masks, something the CDC has recommended, is seen by some as an attack on the president.
7: He doesn't seem to like masks very much. He's attacked Joe Biden a number of times for wearing a mask. He's gone after reporters in the White House for wearing a mask while asking him questions. He did acknowledge that there's a chance people wear masks as a protest to him to show their displeasure for President Trump. And there is a part of him that takes that personally.
6: And the question of masks was also front and center in the lead up to Trump's rally in Tulsa, his first since the pandemic started.
7: I asked him if he was going to be OK with the supporters wearing the masks at the rallies and and he was unequivocal about that.
8: So it's OK if the, your supporters at the rally. Absolutely. Oklahoma... They can wear them or not. I want them to be happy. They're going to have we're going to have a good time. Yeah. I want them to be happy.
7: But I should also point out that whether it's at the rally or at his convention in August, the Trump people have made very clear to local officials that that masks will be optional. Where they draw the line on the ground is that no one's going to be required to wear a mask to a Trump event, but if they want to, that's fine.
6: While these public health questions hang over the future of Trump's campaign, he's turned his criticism toward China. For a long time, he's blamed China for the coronavirus outbreak, but in his interview with Michael, he also went a step further.
7: In our interview, he went so far as to say there's a possibility that China hid the effects of this virus, allowed it to spread beyond their borders intentionally, as a way to damage other economies so that it wasn't only the Chinese economy that was hurt by the virus.
8: And there's a chance that it was intentional. You
7: think that's a lesser
8: chance? Yeah, I think so, because I don't think I don't think they would do that. But you never know.
7: And in an, an intentional. But it,
8: it had it has had an impact. To on spread
7: the economy. economic consequences across.
8: Correct. The They're saying, man, we're in a mess. The United States is killing himself again.
7: It's a pretty explosive charge.
6: It is. Is there any evidence to support it?
7: No, there's no tangible evidence to support that. And I made sure to ask him if he had any, if there was any intelligence, if there were any data points, any dots he was connecting here to lead him to that charge. And he didn't. It was just a, an idea he had. Well, or do you have uh,
8: intelligence? It was obvious. For- and the reason is the tariffs.
7: No, I meant on the... Um, uh, on the chance that they let this virus get beyond their borders on purpose. Is that is that just a sense? It's my, or it's yeah,
8: it's only my, my. Uh, th- it's a sense that that could have happened. You okay. Um, I hope not. Yeah. And I hope we'll be able to find it out.
6: This finger pointing over who's to blame for the state of the U.S. economy is especially important to Trump because before the coronavirus, he was running for reelection on his economic record. Unemployment was at an all-time low, and the U.S. was in its longest economic expansion ever, which the president was eager to point out in the interview. He even had an aide bring him a prepared list of his accomplishments. Give me
8: a list. Give me a list. Oh, look at her. She's so unbelievable. She is so quick. I look up and she's walking in with a list. Look at that. Take this and read it. Okay. Because honestly, this is page after page of things that I've done.
6: Many of those economic accomplishments have been wiped away. And the president is now trying to show that he can get the country out of a recession.
7: We've lost decades of jobs growth in just a few months. And most economists think that it's going to take years, if not decades, for that to come back. But the president sees this as happening much quicker.
8: And I think next year we can have a better – we can have one of the best years we've ever
7: had. What does that look like, the building the? And don't forget, re- so far re- I've
8: been right. Now,
7: His data me. point for that has been the unemployment rate and retail sales in this past month, both of which set records and both that exceeded expectations for Wall Street and economists who who predict these sort of things. And he thinks that there will be a lot of momentum heading into the end of the year, which is when he's up for reelection. And he's couching it a little bit by saying we're going to see a lot of jobs growth in these next few months, and then we're going to just explode. The economy is just going to explode next year, right?
8: tremendous number of jobs, a tremendous increase. I expect a tremendous increase in GDP, and we'll be heading, you know, for the top. We'll be back uh And we've we've got a lot of advantages, a lot of experience. We did it once and we'll do it again. I
7: mean, what he's trying to do here is say, stick with me. I built this economy in the first place and I can rebuild it a second time.
0: This has been episode 51 of Inside COVID-19. Thank you for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.